Today I'm very excited to be here with Slavoj Žižek. He's a Hegelian philosopher, Lacanian psychoanalyst, and political activist. He's the interact. You dropped communist political activist. And a communist political. I, not intentionally. It wasn't in the back of your book. Maybe your publisher. The political dropped court it. will establish your responsibility. <laughs> it's not up to you to decide. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, he's the international director of the Burbeck Institute for the Humanities. Global Distinguished Professor of German at New York University, and his newest book is Refugees, Terror, and Other Troubles with the Neighbors Against the Double Blackmail. Welcome to Think Again, Slavoj. I'm glad to be here again. I'm Thanks. so glad to have yeah. you. Today, while we're recording this, I mean, this will come out a week later, but yeah. we are voting in America. People are very emotional. They're very proud. They're posting to Facebook. I had my nine-year-old son with me in the polls today. But reading your book, you know, my sense is that you would view the election sort of in a sense whichever side you vote on it's it's a broken system the whole thing needs to be kind of redesigned yeah in my last text on the election i ironically of course referred to a famous answer by joseph stalin who when asked in 1928 i think by some official newspaper of course which deviation is worse, the right wing or the left wing. He said, both are worse. Not both are equally bad, but both are worse. And I think it's something like this here. On the one hand, Trump is worse. I mean, the ideas that he stands for, all the white supremacy people, blah, 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 it's just much lower than at least the official ideology of Democratic Party and all those LGBT plus groups and so on that that stand behind it and so on. So Trump is worse. But at the same time, insofar as Trump stands, although a bad change, for some kind of political dynamics, Right. Clinton is worse in the sense that she is simply for the status quo. And that's my problem with Hillary Clinton. She reunited in a masterful ideological operation everyone who is Hillary Clinton. From Occupy Wall Street to Wall Street. From LGBT, black liberation, gay rights to Saudi Arabian money, whatever you want, and so on. And this, the price for this was, of course, Bernie Sanders, who was at least the beginning of a true alternative, had to be erased, had to disappear. And that's what worries me with, I'm sure she will win, Hillary's victory. Nothing will happen. It's the status quo, which means that probably in a couple of years, uh, Trump will be again here. What I was not, as it was misrepresented for Trump, I mean, it makes me throw. Yeah, and let me let me interrupt and and and, and comment and say that the you know the internet has been putting a lot of articles out saying that Slavo here is pro-Trump, when in fact what he said was exactly what you're what you said is what you're saying. No, I'm just saying as you said. (laughs) I'm trying to involve you so that if I'm lynched, you will be lynched with me. We'll hang from the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that. uh, We should, without in any case voting for Trump, we should just coldly appreciate this situation. Maybe I'm wrong. I can even be convinced here. But uh, what if Hillary wins, 
nothing changes, and even more dangerously, what worries me is all those big banks, Cold War warriors like Wolfowitz and so on standing with her. I think she will be this horrible combination of some concessions to progressive sexual freedoms, blah, blah, but it's part of the same package with aggressive foreign policy and so on and so on. While with Trump, disgusting as he is, First, I think this fear that practically he will introduce fascism or what. Right. He cannot do it. United States are too complex a country, and you cannot apply to him this situation of 1933, where also many leftists thought it's better Hitler, that at least the front will be clear, move and so on. No, no. Trump cannot do this. Trump is not simply a neo-fascist. He's a radical often confused opportunist. He often Correct. sometimes even said things which made sense. For example, you know, at a certain point he said, but we should show a little bit more opening for, for Palestinian side also to see it. Then in a typical Trump way, when there was a Jewish backlash, he said, no, 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 Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel, all that stuff. He's radically opportunist. I mean, I think the concern that a lot of people have, myself included, mm, yeah. is that he's unpredictable. We don't know what he we, I, we don't I, know here what I respectfully do. disagree and, with you. I think he has a lot of this posturing and so on. But I think that basically in his acts, he's just an, an, a very realistic opportunist. And I don't think, I wouldn't even expect any big changes with him in power. What I do fear, I'm aware of the stuff. First, I know that the very fact that he mobilized white supremacists right. and so on is dangerous. Point two. Yes. If he nominates all the judges in the Supreme Court, it's a problem. But For 40 years, you yeah, know. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But what I nonetheless think is that his victory, which will not happen, would have been <laughs> such a shock that it would hopefully trigger a certain process which I think would more or less certainly brought out a certain revitalized, not communist left, but let's say Bernie Sanders a step further. And point two, it would have been a great problem for Republican Party, although people think that, no, all these opportunisms, different factions in the Republican Party, that in his victory they would be united. I don't believe this. Right. I think that, okay, I'll put it like this. Now I will say something radical and crazy. Okay. <laughs> those people I detect in those moderate leftist liberals who right. fell into this game, oh, Hillary is nonetheless the lesser evil, desperately in this situation, that they secretly know that Trump means change. He is a voice of those enraged disappointment, which could be maybe redirected, that they are really horrified at change as such. They really, I, I quote in my new text, which appeared digitally online within these times two days ago, I quote a wonderful passage from George Orwell, who claims that today's radical progressives talk a lot about change, about the necessity of change, to make it sure that there will be no change. You know? Okay. Like, I think that this... Uh, but are you, so you th are you saying that all change is good? I mean, like, uh, no, but shooting I, a nuclear bomb at the U.S. I know it's a change radical change, well. but like, it's not yeah. good. No, but I'm nonetheless saying that this 
fear of, again, I repeat it, Trump is disgusting, <laughs> but the, this fear of Trump that it will mean new fascism. I don't share this fear. I think he's a really a very opportunist. Not I, a, think, I think it means significant empowerment of some very, very ugly elements in American society, which I'm not saying are going to vanish the, when yeah, he's not yeah, elected. But, but, at the, but at the same time, I think that the big problem of United States from the very beginning, right. maybe the last time of a strong socialist party was, I think, in the years, not even decades after World War I, right, right, I think, right. no? May, but, well, maybe, yeah, 1930s. Uh, 30 was laid down. I think 20s, there was some 20s, yeah. SUP, socialist sure, workers' sure. party. So I think that what would be wonderful news for the United States is to make a step over this radical eccentric circles and just these one issue movements and so on like right. which are nice lgbt gay rights and so on to make it into a serious much a little much a little bit more radical political force what in european terms would have been not too moderate, but not too radical, but a serious, even social democratic force. Right, right. And that's for me the tragedy of Hillary. Her greatest act will not be defeating Trump, that was easy to right. do, but defeating the threat of this alternative Bernie Sanders and so, so on. Oh, I see, I see. So your issue, as I understand it from the book, is with this sort of tepid alliance of global capitalism, like that issues like LGBT rights and whatever get subsumed into this giant global octopus of global capitalism. Yeah, and, and it works. And it works in the sense of, that's the big problem I have with some feminists and so on, where I claim, to put it in this bombastic Marxist terms, <laughs> okay. uh, the predominant ideology of today's global capitalism in the developed Western countries is no longer patriarchy and so on. It's precisely this type of, let's call it, watered-down Judith Butler, you know. Judith uh, Butler, okay. No, but watered down, right. uh, in the sense of this common perception of let's not have a transfixed identity, we need the freedom to redefine ourselves, to reinvent ourselves, right. and this is why also LGBT plus fits it perfectly. Right. This idea, no fixed divisions, we always reconstruct ourselves, redefine ourselves, and so on. And, and you so argue on. that that's sort of easily, Absolutely. Co easily commodified. No, and I am easily here, th that not, not so much commodified, but I'm saying even for, not only that it is easily appropriated, but that it is fundamentally the ideology of today's global capitalism. I know, now you Oh, say, so identity politics equals global capitalism. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's... Uh, no, you know in what sense equals? If you deprive identity politics of its social age, and that's the whole artistry of American mainstream politics. Okay. To be for identity politics, to deprive it of its more radical social edge. So that, for example, that, I see. that's why I criticize the notion of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Tolerance means instead of political struggle, which is intolerant, right. the problem becomes I'm who I am, you are whom I am, we should learn to tolerate each other, and so on and so on. Yeah. This is not what even right-wing authentic politics is. Authentic politics is I have a global vision which is different from yours. Let's fight without killing each other, but let's fight radically to the end. One really interesting thing mm. in your book mm. is the chapter on the stranger, um, and this brings me to that. The idea of the neighbor, and the chapter is called The Limits of Neighborhood, and you quote another writer and, and essentially say that 
creepiness is the modern definition uh, or the modern yeah. sort of core of the neighbor. And you say, you basically say, we shouldn't try and within this refugee crisis and other other yeah. global issues, we shouldn't try to sentimentally sympathize or empathize with the pain of others, but we should no, I'm recognize saying, yeah. our alienation from them yeah. and no, ourselves. No, I'm trying to say something else. I, okay. want to right. I also quote it in the book. Okay. For example, you know, often we encounter in politics, for me at least, utter stupidities <laughs> yes. which appear as wisdom. And I quote one, you may remember, which is, enemy is someone to whose story we were not able or ready to listen. Right, right. Okay, it sounds deep and it's understandable. Like, you have your own vision. I don't care it. I stigmatize you as the enemy. I don't want to hear your side of the story. Sorry, but this wisdom has great limitations. Would you also say, for example, that Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen? No, there are real enemies. Okay. Where the more you listen to his story, the more you should hate him. But speaking as one of these liberals that you're sort of writing against yeah. in that section, yeah, yeah. because speaking, I think I think I that's me. I think that's me. Listen, um, I can tell you something with all my friendship. Uh, when we the people take over, you go to Gulag, but I will, <laughs> you call me. I will arrange that uh, you will get cigarettes and whiskey there. You will not suffer too much. Uh, okay, let's excellent, go on. Excellent. So yeah. it will be sort of an oligarchy in a way. Oligarchy. Okay, yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> um, so, but but I am not saying we should not understand our neighbor and so on. I'm just saying there is a limit, and true tolerance is not this. I should absolutely understand you. Right. True tolerance is. I don't understand you because, as I put it cynically, I think, in the book, who can say that I even understand myself? Myself, right. Yeah, true tolerance for me is not, I should understand all your myths and so on. True tolerance is, we are in one of these big, around Washington Square, these high uh, condominiums and so on. And my ideal is to live there. Next apartment is an African-American, next apartment an Indian, an Arab, hardline Jew, Latino-American. And... We have polite relations, maybe, maybe not, I become friendly with some of them, but we fully respect each other with all the differences. That's almost my ideal society. I don't like this absolute pressure. I must understand you to the end. No, the true mis- the true, even the true love is this. The true love, now I'm moving, but it's a good parallel, I think, to personal level. Okay. I never like this idea of total love, we think like one and so on. That's right. horrible. In true love, you leave to your beloved a certain autonomy. You know you cannot penetrate her, not sexually, but <laughs> mentally, totally and so on. So why this obsession with understanding the other to the end? That's not the problem. And I think the, the problem sorry, just no, the ahead. problem is that even if we don't at this level of ways of life understand each other, we should build a common front. So my right. idea is, right, right. look, I always use this wonderful example. You remember Tahrir Square Egypt yes. demonstrations. Okay. Till that point, it was always popular to say, but can we understand Egyptians? Are they mature for democracy? When that happened, all of a sudden, all those city problems of multiculturalism, do we understand them, disappeared, and we were not wrong. We knew now we are on the same side. This is our shared struggle. 
I, I like those moments. I don't think uh, some liberal cynics would have said, bad liberals now, not you, that this is, just, <laughs> this is just an illusion. No, it's not an illusion. This is authentic universality, which is always the universality of a struggle. Not that UNESCO book, Universality, where all, world, all world cultures are described as big contributions to world humanity. I believe in a struggling universality. Mm. We have problems, Indians have problems, Arabs have problems. Can we form a united front? Okay, I, so I totally get that on the... But, I, on the no, I get it on the political level yeah. and the cultural level. I understand that we can't even understand ourselves, mm. let alone understand another mm. person fully. I also, or communities, I, I, also communities, one community, one way of life. Right, right. Another. And I also understand something that you're saying, which I think is really interesting, which is that when we attempt to fully understand one another, what we essentially do is impress a set of assumptions yes, upon the other, yes. which then when they don't meet those assumptions, yes. we get pissed off and we get angry or insulted this or is whatever. Typical you know, with uh, African Americans or will with uh, with uh, Native Americans, right. for example. How often I found my friends celebrating uh, blacks, African Americans as wonderful their music, blah blah blah. Yeah. But then when you meet, as every social group has it, a more brutal side, whatever they get in total panic. You know, all of a sudden sure. understand. You know what's the problem? If I may use my old metaphor, in the same way that in today's consumerism we like to get a product without its rough element. Right. We like coffee without caffeine, beer without alcohol, sausage without fat. We like to get a neighbor, an yeah. ethnic other, without its dark side. A kind of a gotcha. purified, decaffeinated neighbor, I call them, you know. So, uh, but for me, true respect for the neighbor is that precisely you accept the neighbor, not as someone who should not be criticized, but you accept him precisely as someone with all his weaknesses, horrors, respectfully get engaged in a dialogue with right. him. Not this patronizing respect, which is false. Well, Sorry. so in some ways, I guess what I want to say, though, is that I think that there is a type of empathy and that there is a value of empathy, which is not sentimental or patronizing and which is actually a willing a, a desire at any rate to find some kind of common ground with other human beings and i yet, I, I don't yet. know if these terms are even mm. meaningful anymore but in a way it seems like what you're describing is a very kind of what i would think of or would have thought of at one time in history as a very masculine perspective a kind of like robust like let us make fun of each other and go to battle together uh, now as i have a, the ultimate surprise for you <laughs> I Which is not to say only agree, for men. But, but yeah. now, as a good feminist, I would tell you, which notion of masculinity, femininity you have here? These roles are historical and changed. Sure. For example, now comes the big. <laughs> I think that the very couple, Trump-Hillary, Trump-Clinton, tells us a lot. Till now, we have a certain notion of masculinity which was predominant. Right. It was... I follow here my good friend Alain Badiou, who develops this in his new book, which was defined by a certain right of maturity. Okay. Like, in traditional societies, but this meant till 30, 40 years ago, you become really a man 
after some initiation, either in Europe it was typical after you serve the army, that was the initiation, or after you find a permanent job, or after you get married, or even after you finish your studies. Now, this symbolic moment of initiation are disappearing, no longer have weight. Right. Men are more and more, this is a tendency, but a profound one, defined by their, let's call it, uh, prolonged adolescence. Right. You are never mature, even when you are adult, you remain an adolescent. Right. And then women, very interestingly, are to a large extent treated as prematurely mature. Already girls are treated as women responsible for them. So what is happening in our social space is that because of this lack of moment of initiation, which provides you with a certain identity, men then look for results in half illegal gangs and so on, all right. that stuff, violence and so on. While Women are emerging as something much more interesting. There is a new figure of power today, which mobilizes certain traditional features of femininity, not just brutality, but comprehending, understanding, right. which fits, let's call it post-authoritarian functioning of power even better. But you quote a wonderful example. He says, look at typical... French courts for young delinquents. The typical scene is a young immigrant working class boy, non-socialized, immature, part of a gang, right. treated for him by faces of power, which are for him predominantly feminine. Hmm. Judges, feminine judges, psychiatrists, and so on. So I think that this new duality, man as immature, irrationally aggressive, uh, exploding, not controlling himself. On the other hand, woman as more compassionate and so on, right. but at the same time, in much power. more. Yeah. Uh, in, I'm, uh, first, let me make it clear. I'm not saying these are women. I'm here. I'm totally pro-feminist. I'm just saying this is one position which is of power which is today offered to women. Okay, my point is this one. Is not an ideal example of this the couple Donald Trump-Hillary? Right. Donald Trump is the ultimate, isn't he a perpetual adolescent? What he does is, he just explodes, says this, uh, well, Hillary is this ultimate manipulative woman, and <laughs> even, I heard some rumors, who knows if they are true, that even this is how their true personal relationship works. It's Hillary okay. who is, I mean, Hillary and Bill. And Bill. It's Bill who is now more weakened, so worn weakened. And Hillary, already in the Levinsky affair, she was not that, oh, crying, what are you doing? But Totally in control, strategic. Yeah, she was, know. okay, go to play with Monica while I'll do the serious plot. Right, 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 right. So, uh, in other words, I like to see this couple, Hillary and Trump, yeah. as a new version of sexual difference of gender roles right. emerging in late capitalism. The, and they are not only bad for the men, but also bad for the women. Probably. It allows women more power, but only if you obey these brutal, commercialized, commodified rules of feminine manipulation and so on. This worries me. No, 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 it's not only here. Look, I even, in a certain way, I even admire this. Did you notice that in the last decades, if you want a really tough job done, Margaret Thatcher, Indira Gandhi, right. you need a woman, and I like that. 
Even in Germany, Angela Merkel was a nice surprise. No, but I understand what you're saying. I yes. understand what Now, you're saying. Now, I'm not saying that this is an argument against women's yes, power. Of course. You know. It's just that we have women demands for power. I totally agree with them. And then in a tricky way, it offers you, okay, you women want power. Here you have it in this. Here's so, how you have to do, you perform it, it you yeah, know, or whatever. Yeah. And this is but, a very sad tendency. Yes, I, I, I can totally buy that. I guess. But, well, go I, to I, no, no, no. Again, going back to what we were saying before, I think you propose a dichotomy which may exist, but that the sole binary in that dichotomy doesn't have to be between sentimental, insultingly, um, superior kind of pity for the other and on the other hand this sort of distance and solidarity i don't think those are the only like i think that there is there are visions of coming to understanding through I understanding agree with this, the but other through understanding is a very painful long process which goes well beyond any kind of uh, <laughs> sentiment right. you know in what and sense you know i will tell you how you will probably not agree with it. I think it was the only moment I come to an understanding with my Chinese friends. I was there at the philosophical conference and, okay, we just talked, obviously, we talked empty. And then somebody attacked me and another guy attacked me, but they attacked me in a totally different way and they ended up attacking each other. <laughs> and I was able to identify with that struggle. All of a sudden, there were no problems. I was fighting for one against the other. You know, to understand a culture is ultimately to understand their problem, their antagonism. Mm. That would be my... Mm. I don't... Really otherwise, you mystify the other into this, you know, they live some organic, meaningful life. They know we are all in the same shit. <laughs> I don't believe in some people there. Like, this is... Or even with revolutionary activists. But what about, what about the, like, psychological experience of being a person and, like, having a kid? And, for example, let me give you an example really yeah. quick, and then let's yeah, move yeah. on to the next thing after I hear your response. Yeah. You know, the, there's this guy. He works in the parking garage where we park our car. Ah, he's a real guy. He's a guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he... A few days ago, like, I'm like, how you doing? You know, we, I didn't know anything. Yeah, the guy's yeah. from the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I yeah, see yeah. him when I park yeah, my yeah, car. Yeah. I said, how are you doing? And he's like, not so good. And I'm like, what's going on? Yeah. And it turns out his daughter, who's like 30, is in a coma. And he and I had a moment, like, she just fell into a coma. Hmm. And, like, I had a moment where I stared across the abyss oh, no. between yeah, of yeah. culture and everything else that divides me and this guy. And I just, like, hugged the man. I don't know uh, him. No, no. This you know, I don't... No, I, I totally believe in such moments. Yeah. But you saw that it was a moment of pain, of nonetheless. And yeah. it had to be this, I think. But that I is a common human experience. I have lost people. I am not... His experience is not my experience. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. there's some resonance there. Otherwise, no, no. we couldn't have Wait done Wait a minute. That, I yeah, don't yeah. have any problems. <laughs> although some multiculturalists will again... Complicate the game, telling you. But how do you know that the loss of a child means the same thing? I to don't. You? Intellectually, I don't. I don't in but there was a thing, you know. There. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think that you were right. <laughs> this was a universal, a genuine universal moment, and I don't believe in this 
pseudo-intellectual complication, but how do I know that yeah, mourning yeah, means yeah. the same thing to you as to him? No, I believe in this magic moment of sharing intimacy. I totally believe okay, in that. They okay. are genuinely <laughs> universal. All right. I yeah. wanted to ask you about that after no, reading no, your no, book, no, and no, then no, this no, happened. No, yeah. no, no. Um, so let's get to the second part of the show. Huh? Which where is we have the, 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 the terror with surprise. Yeah, yeah. the terror Will of surprise. Will it be surprise. video or where? These, are, these are video. I suppose. Oh, fuck you! You already had them there. Uh, they sent them to me. I've not watched them. Oh, I swear uh, to you. No, I'm not so bad. Uh, I am bad, but not so bad. All right. So the first one, Scott Barry Kaufman, who is the director of something called the Imagination Institute. I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. I about don't know what that is either. I'm also an idiot on that's, that score. That's the problem. And it's called "There Is a Way to Unlock Human Potential," but it's not standardized testing. The, the idea of, of what we should be testing is very hotly debated because there's a certain objectivity that we think we have once we standardize things and we give it the same test to everyone. And there is some truth to that, that the more you standardize a test, the more you kind of give everyone the oppor- same opportunity to perform on that test. There, so there is some argument to be made towards standardization. But we don't have standardized minds. I mean, no one has a standardized mind. There's no such thing as, as an average mind. So every one of us, every unique individual, is a dynamic system of not just cognitive processes, but motivational processes, dreams, desires. I formulated a theory, called it the theory of personal intelligence, because I argued I wanted to shift our focus of analysis from compare, taking one aspect. We say, well, this is, we've decided as a society, that's our measure of intelligence. And then we compare everyone to each other on that one metric. So when it comes to testing, I'm not uh, necessarily against testing. I'm uh, not necessarily against using standardized tests as a way of measuring um, learning outcomes. But as a way of measuring human potential, I'm not down with that. It sounds nice, but I'm a little bit suspicious about it. I thought you would be. (laughs) You know why? Because I don't like this focus on individuals. Uh Because this can ultimately also mean there are no idiots because each of us has individual standards and so on. Of course, this is, even in a banal way, true. But there is nonetheless something in between these universal tests and your unique individual composure is, my God, we are not born as individuals. We are raised through internalizing certain standards of our way of life and so on and so on. Right. And we then, live in communities. We live in yeah, cultures. And yeah. these communities precisely always involve a certain balance between intellectual, emotional, organizatorial capacities and so on and so on. So, yes, we should demystify tests. They don't measure an objective property of yours, and so on. But they can well measure how do you stand with regard to what your community expects from a successful or bright or whatever human being. And here things get for me complicated. Because if you don't fit this model, it's not as simple as to say, but maybe you have your own standards. Yes, you have your own standards, but you know, like... 101 of 99 people, this your own standards mean you are dropout. Right. And every 100, even less, makes out of this distance 
something creative and you explode. Right. And I think it's too cheap to say, yeah, creativity in everyone and so on and so on. Again, creativity, it's a very problematic term. What do you mean by creativity? Right. I mean, creativity is, again, a term which I would return to him, to this guy, his own argumentation and say, what does he mean by creativity? Different cultures appreciate creativity in a different... For example, in some cultures, it's a creative way is what I ironically refer to as the, how do you call them, as the Lee Strasberg actors sure, studio. Sure, sure. Yeah, that creativity means you openly bring out, express right, yourself. Right, right, right. I'm horrified. At There's this. a famous, do you know this famous, allegedly there was a conversation yeah. between um, Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman on the yeah. set of Marathon Man. Yeah, Are you yeah, but I was this? totally, this is my favorite dentist movie. I'm totally on the side of, of Laurence Olivier. Yeah, of Olivier said, yeah, so, so for the audience, yeah. um, Hoffman has been uh, he comes shows up on set he's been up all night yeah. he's he's exhausted yeah, yeah, in yeah. order to try to get into the yeah, character yeah. using the method yeah, yeah. and and he's too exhausted to act and and Olivier allegedly said to him my dear man why don't you just try acting yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and you see for me although it was less of this creativity imagination it was much more intelligent, this typically British restraint, right. Laurence Olivier. <laughs> you know, even we don't even agree how we measure creativity and so on. I'm here more on the side of this, rest- although it may appear almost ironic the way I shout all the time, <laughs> but I'm intimately much more sympathetic with this British or conservative Japanese approach where they claim True creativity is not in this explosion of ideas. True creativity should appear as modest, invisible. You apparently do nothing, nothing big, but all of a sudden you appear that everything is different, everything changed, you know. So it's much more, it's even more complex than he imagines. And that's why I think he's not totally right. Well, so I, I want to introduce another kind of complexity. Yeah. So, you know, what you're saying on the one hand is that cultures have different values and yeah, different yeah. definitions of intelligence, yeah, creativity, yeah. etc. And what you described was really a cultural or a personal preference for one style over another. You, you personally are sort of allergic to the, the kind of emotion-based, explosion-based form of creativity. Yeah, but I will give you another example. Sorry, very funny. Now I, I remember, you know yeah, yeah, Sam yeah. Goldwyn, the producer, who yes. was well known for his so-called Goldwynisms. Yes. Apparent nonsense, but well thought out. So once... Okay, actually, you know what, I'm sorry, could you briefly explain what Goldwynisms are? Sam Goldwyn was the big Metro Goldwyn yes. producer, who was well known for apparently making stupid mistakes, okay. but which are very intelligent. Which were, so one of the stories of him is that he read in a newspaper the complaint that in the scenarios of the films he is making, right. there are too many old cliches. Okay. And he wrote a memo to his screenplay scenario department. We urgently need more new original cliches. <laughs> he was deeply right. True creativity is not to break out of cliches, but to install new cliches. I see, I see. That's for me true creativity. Every idiot can be creative in the sense of I'm out of cliches and so on. The truly difficult thing is to propose a new cliche. I think that that second kind that you're talking about is also more sustainable. Like if you're, if you're the 
the sort of expressionist, exploding creative that's that can only last yeah. so long yeah, before you spend it. That's why you can it, imagine you know, this. Like, I hate Jackson Pollock. Right. My hero abstract ex expression is, is Mark Rothko, not Jackson Pollock. Ah, interesting. Okay. So, but what I was going to say also, though, is that the problem, going back to standardized testing, one of the problems is that I don't know that societies know what they value. What I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure that standardized tests always actually or accurately no, represent anything like uh, the values that's of the absolutely culture. obvious. Yeah. But, but why even expect this from standard tests and so on? Yeah. What I'm, on the other hand, not against is that, let's be very brutal, you have a certain opening for a job. Right. And you don't care about creativity, blah, blah. You want people who are well at doing something. Right. And I think you should have the right to test them, and you don't pretend like you test me. Right. And I can then claim, oh, but you missed all my other creativities. And you can say, screw you. I'm not buying you as a poor <laughs> person. I need you for this, and I need you to have this property. Right, right. I don't find there anything reified, alienated, and so on and so on. But like, if you are hired for a professor of mathematics, yeah, yeah. you should have certain abilities. And I don't give a shit if you have other <laughs> emotional abilities. Right, so right, on. right, right, right. Well, it gets even slipperier, though. Like, you know, for a professor of mathematics, that's one thing. That's Well, I won't call it concrete, but it's mm. a little more concrete in some ways than what is needed in, say, a middle manager in a corporation. There, and I agree with you, there, there are many myths there. They don't and know And it gets more. very yeah. confusing, and they have no idea what, like, when they hire people, oh, no, they don't but, know what they're listen, doing. Now, <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. I even, for example, my good friend... Varoufakis, Yanis, the Greek okay. uh, He told me, before he became Varoufakis, well-known, no? He asked me, why don't we write a book on political economy, on economy together? Yeah. I said, but I don't have any idea what economists do. He, he told me, neither do economists, you know, like, <laughs> economists, a great uh, uh, science of magic, like astrology, superstition, and so on. So, this is very deep thing, what you said, especially people who pretend to understand others, psychological advisors, and so on, and so on, even psychoanalysts. Right. It shocks me again and again how, for example, psychoanalysts, whom you would expect to have a refined nose for subtle nuances. Right. I met so many, not just stupid, but brutally insensitive psychoanalysts, yeah. who, like much more than an average person, don't get the point. Like somebody can be making a tragic appeal, they dismiss this as just an empty aggressivity or whatever. It makes you very pessimistic. It's, See it's how terrible. even the specialists don't get it. Because the people, whoever is gatekeeping in those fields, mm. does, they can't agree upon what constitutes a good psychoanalyst. Evidently. Yeah, but the problem is that, you know, this is the <laughs> law of bureaucracy and all institutions. You don't really want to solve a problem. You want to guarantee your reproduction. Right, no? right, right. And so, so you're mit mitigating risk, mostly. Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Shall we, shall we yeah, see yeah, what the yeah, next please, one is? Please, okay, cool. That cool. my wife will not kill me. Oh, I don't want I your wife to it. kill you. That would be terrible. We will mm -hmm. do one more. Okay. And this will be oh. Daniel Bergner, who is an author and a journalist, saying neuroplasticity explains why women may be less monogamous than men. There's some pretty stark research out there now that just talk about one study. This was done by a German scientist, looked at 2,500 committed couples, so no small number, 
the results are probably no fluke. And he measured their desire progressively over time. The desire starts at right about the same point for the men and for the women. So again, debunking this idea that somehow male desire, male libido is far stronger innately than female libido. But what happens interestingly is that male desire declines gradually over time. Female desire dives much more dramatically than male desire within those committed relationships. And I think two things are worth saying. First, again, the very least, this calls into question this idea that somehow women are comparatively better suited to monogamy than men are. But second, has to do with cultural lessons and their effects on the brain. So I think most of us have heard this phrase, or at least are familiar with the concept of brain plasticity. That is, the brain is shifting neurologically in response to what we do with it. Well, what happens to the brain if we're taught very different lessons about sexuality from early on? Boys are, of course, taught right from the playground, really, that being a little bit of a Romeo, all to the good. Girls are taught a very different and more constrained lesson, even in our seemingly unconstrained society. Can you help me? But you can yeah, 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 maybe. I, I didn't quite get, get the it. point. Uh, the point is, I know how with women it's declined earlier, no? He's but saying, yeah, in committed relationships. In that, committed, that, but, that, but that, wait a minute. He, did he mean when he spoke about how women's eros right. declines much faster? Yeah. Did he mean generally the erotic desire of women or concretely the desire to your partner? The latter. Desire but to it the was not clear from his line. I, 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 my understand. Well, okay. My understanding of what he was saying was yeah. that he's proposing that women may be yeah, less inclined to monogamy why? than men why? Why? because to yeah, that, it's strange because it's like society conditions them to not God. to be sexual beings, and therefore sexuality drops off faster in relationships. But then why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it drop off altogether? I also altogether? have another problem. Yeah. <laughs> nonetheless, women, in spite of gains of feminism and so yeah. on, still more sexualized. Even, I'll give you one measure. Yeah. It's still considered normal, and I'm happy to enjoy this, to be married to 30 years younger woman. Okay, some people are a little bit ironic, but no problems. Right. If... I were to be 30 years younger, being married to 30 years older than me, woman. Right. Then it's In shocking. spite of, yeah. all chain, yeah. uh, of all changes brought by feminism, it would cause much greater animosity, ironic remarks, at least, and so on and mm. so on. So I think that... I'm not, actually, I'm not sure I agree you with really? that. No. Okay, maybe not cause, in Because honestly, I think there are a lot of people in the United States who would view the, like, older man-younger-woman relationship and make catty, snotty, ironic yeah, remarks yeah. and say, but, oh, look at him yeah, 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 fishing yeah. for and, the younger... You know, that's nice, you know yeah. and, and, uh, and the other way around, I guess it would engender some ridicule, but I think it would engender in America more bafflement. I think people would be like confused. They'd be like, huh, That's true. why it would is be that nice. happening? Yeah. You know? No, it would be very nice to ask what does he see in her, not in an ironic way, but genuinely, like, right. why is that woman so attractive and so on? But okay, then I will put it in this way. 
Wouldn't it be more logical in an abstract way from this decline of desire to right, claim? Right. But in, if in the marriage we have this gap, right. like when you are married 15 years, your wife's desire declines, so you should be the one looking for it elsewhere then. I don't, this, right, right. This, I then, didn't uh, get it. Well, that makes sense. Well, I think... What I agree with, sorry, is plasticity. That, you know, the way our brain is all permanently restructuring itself, it matters a lot, and so on and so on. Also, again, we have to be so precise here. I think that it's with men still. This is traditional identity, I know, but mm-hmm. it's if... Anything till recently, it was much more considered normal for a woman to be more exclusively mother, stay at home. Right. And man is the one who goes outside, right. travels, does the job, and so on. Now, the truly interesting thing would be this one. If we are passing, I hope we are, from this to this post-patriarchal family right. where woman is also expected to make a career and so on. Gotcha. How does this shift affect the permanence of uh, sexual excitement of desire? Like, what did their relative, at least, emancipation, and this is a great gain for women, yeah. that it's considered normal, you're not a pathological frigid woman, right. to, if you want to make a career gain, how does this affect woman's desire? That's a does good it question. diminish yeah. it, or does it really strengthen? I mean, Even, that's a great I don't question, know. And, and I think one thing I wanted to say, or that I thought of while watching yeah. this video, is how mysterious sexuality remains and maybe that's a good thing we don't going back to what we were saying before about experts like nobody is the expert on it it's this very murky scary realm people don't talk about it in much i mean they do among friends or whatever but as a society the data exists but but not in any consistent or robust way so people can come along and claim this or that may be the case about women's yeah. sexuality. So, to recapitulate, like, the problem for women <laughs> with this is that probably the guy has more behind it. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. from this clip, it simply appears to me, but I don't blame him because I didn't get enough background data. Right. It wasn't clear. I see so many other options to interpret this. Like when he said, we follow 250 couples or whatever. Right, right, a representative right, right, right. example. Well, I would like it, what w- I would be much more interested if, if we were to compare one group of couples which remain married all the time yeah. and others which got divorced and so on, women are, and men, other partners, and how does this affect your right. desire and right. so on. There are so many other venues here that I simply cannot. Yeah, fair enough. But going back to one thing, I think, and then we can yeah. wind it up. Have you seen the film Harold and Maude? Do you know the film Harold and Maude? I know, but uh, I totally forgot about it. Okay, Maybe but I've seen it 30 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Hal Ashby film, and like Maude is an older lady, mm. and Harold is discontent in his life, and he falls mm. in love with her. Mm. And I, it's the only film, I mean, I thought of it because of what mm. you said. It's the only film I know of, and it's the only piece of mm. literature. Like, we all know Lolita, right? Yeah, yeah. Which disgusts us yeah, 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 on the yeah, other yeah. hand, because yeah, yeah. we're like, we can't believe the yeah, intensity yeah, yeah, yeah. of this somewhat likable mm. narrator's affection for this young mm. girl. With Harold and Maude, it's trying to show, you know, she, she, Maude must be 80, 
and Harold is maybe 20. So radical. And, yeah. yeah, and he falls in love with her. What uh, is it? Sexual love or? No, it's love, love. She opens his world. He's in a very constrained uh-huh. family environment. His mom is rich. He's, she's constantly trying to give him presents like a jaguar, which he converts into a hearse. You yeah, would enjoy yeah. this film, I think. But, but um, no, I would say at least something else. That it yeah. must be an interesting movie because one of my absolutely favorite Hollywood movies is, did you see also Hall Ashby? Being there? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the, the so ultimate good. movie about transference. How a complete idiot, if you find yourself at the right place. Yes. It produces magic and so on. I like the situation how then the guy says total platitudes. Yeah. And they are overinterpreted as wise instruction into politics and so on and so on. That's the reality of our lives. I yes. think it's a, one of the most radical, wonderful movies. It's incredible. Yeah, it's uh, Peter Sellers. Is Peter in it, Sellers, and it's based yeah. on a book by an by yeah, Eastern Cotis. European. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And then there is uh, the, another role. It's, I think, Shirley MacLaine and yes, so on. Yes, and yes, so on and, and, so on. Yeah, and he's just a, he's a gardener with limited mental capacity. Yeah, yeah. And then he, and everyone thinks he's a genius because he speaks in sort of Zen koans, which yeah, are yeah, not. But no, the, the catch <laughs> is that they are common sense statements, yeah. but because he occupies the position of a genius, they are interpreted as And as and, and you feel that that defines much of our uh, intellectual life. Absolutely. <laughs> of course, maybe not in such an extreme way, but so much depends on how you are interpreted. Right. I often notice this. When people take me seriously as a philosopher, I say something vulgar, they look something from it. Right. From other people, I can develop what I think is, well, a nice line of thought. They dismiss it as meaningless and so on. So much depends on this uh, horizon of expectation, how you approach it. How yeah, you, how do yeah. you feel about this weird, like, the, I keep seeing this, the Elvis of philosophy. I that seems. This Incredibly so insulting. And it just sticks like, to me. Yeah. Again and again, I protest to my publishers, please don't do this. Yeah. And it just sticks to me. It's, it so, it's so yeah. dismissive of yeah. what is obviously a serious body yeah. of work. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> ah, but that's why when people tell me, how does it feel you are a star of philosophy, I claim no. Being called star of <laughs> philosophy popular is a refined way to attack me. Right. It's a way to say, oh, you are a funny guy, but not too serious not and too so on. But yeah, I yeah, stop yeah. to care. Yeah, yeah, you I have to, right? How could yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.